We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark today in Mark chapter 16. If you'd be finding that in your Bibles, and we'll read a few scriptures here in a moment. I was looking back over my records this morning. We began the Gospel of Mark in September of 2018. And... Um, I never intended for it to be a long series, a short series. I just intended to take it section by section. So it's been quite a journey. And we've done that in many books of the Bible, but I don't think I've, I've taught and preached through any book of the Bible that's helped me more, that has affected me more than the Gospel of Mark. Today we find ourselves in the last verses of Mark 16. I think it's a very fitting way to end this great narrative that Mark gives us about the life of Jesus, about the gospel of Jesus, about the way he lived, the way he died, the way he ministered to people, the way he rose from the dead. But the, the final message that we will look at today, if we get through this text, is the final message he left with his disciples and we'll read that together. Mark chapter 16. If you're able to stand, please stand with us as we read beginning in verse 14. Afterward, this is after the resurrection, after he had appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus, after he had appeared to Mary and some of the women, afterward, verse 14 says, he appeared unto the eleven... 12 minus Judas. Afterward, he appeared unto the leaven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. From last week and the week before, we'll remember that there were several different people who said, first of all, that they heard that the angel said that he's alive and they didn't believe that. And then Mary saw him and said that I saw him. They didn't believe that. The two men on the road to Emmaus said we saw him ourselves. They didn't believe that. So Jesus is now braiding them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Verse 15 says, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover." So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today and for the portion of your word that we will give our attention to. And I do pray for your help. I pray that, Lord, you would give me of your power and your grace as I seek to preach and teach and give all of us, Lord, a heart to hear, to be receptive to your word, to learn from your word and to learn from the testimony of others 
We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Just to get right into the text here in verse 14, it says that Jesus, after those things, and, it, and we have this rec- kind of a continual progression of Jesus' uh, appearances. Verse 12 says, after that, he appeared to another form to two of them. Verse 14, afterward, he appeared unto the eleven. So he's spending time here with the disciples. By the way, after the resurrection of Christ, he spent a lot of time with the disciples. Um, Hold your finger here. We're going to go to a few other passages today. But go first of all to the book of Acts, if you would, in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, Peter, who was one of those 11 who was with Jesus, gives a testimony of this as he was preaching uh, to Cornelius and his family. In Acts chapter 10, in verse 40, it says, this is a part of Simon Peter's message. goes with what we're saying today in Mark. Acts chapter 10 and verse 40, him, talking about Jesus, him, God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. Here Peter talks about that. After Jesus was resurrected, the times they had with Jesus, according to Acts chapter 1, Jesus spent 40 days with the disciples and showing himself alive to many others after he raised from the dead. Let's go back to Mark, if you would, in Mark 16. So now Jesus is talking to these people in verse 14, these 11 Apostles, afterward he appeared unto them as they sat at meat. Jesus loved these men. They were not perfect. They had failed him. They had made their own mistakes like we all do, but Jesus loved them. And he fellowshiped with them. He ate with them, spent time with them. He instructed them. And an important thing to notice in our text, he corrected them. It says in verse 14, he upbraided them. Now, upbraid is probably a word that you haven't used this week, but basically it means he scolded them. He rebuked them. He reprimanded them. He reproved them. I've thought about this before, and I just want to think about it again. Imagine what it'd be in a small group of people, just this little group over here, these two rows. Just imagine We have these two rows of people, a small group of people. We're sitting together in a circle, and Jesus is there. Imagine having Jesus upbraid you, correct you, reprimand you. And it brings a question to my mind, and I want us all to think about it as we think about what happened that day. Does Jesus ever rebuke you? Does Jesus ever reprimand you, call you on the carpet, we might say? Jesus, think I'm talking about how Jesus is. Jesus was closer to these men than any other people on the planet. He loved them. He didn't always reprimand them, but he did reprimand them. And I say this for a very valid reason. If Jesus never rebukes you, there's something wrong. Surely you don't think you're perfect. 
Surely you don't think every word you say, every attitude you have, every decision you make is perfectly fine with Jesus. And if he does not reprove, young person, if Jesus never rebukes you when you're disrespectful to your parents, you've got a problem. He rebuked these people because he loved them. And I say this because some people in our generation seem to have this notion about Jesus that all he ever does is give us attaboys. You're good. I'm for you. Everything's okay. And I'm telling you, that's not all that Jesus is. Yes, he loves us. Yes, he encourages us. Yet he strengthens us, but he also rebukes us. And if he never rebukes you, I want to plead with you right now, ask yourself why. Why? Is it because I never do anything wrong or maybe because I don't even know him? Maybe, maybe I'm not close to him. You know, the Bible says, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. So if you're never chastened or rebuked, it may be that you're not his son. He loves us too much to let us disobey. He he corrects our disobedience. If we we say ill-advised words, he deals with us about it. If we gossip or tailbear, if we have a negative attitude or a critical spirit, or if if we don't have an interest in his work or we don't want to serve him, I promise you, if I were to say today, I'm just not going to serve God with my life, I would have some very... Strong words coming back to me from Jesus. Not in an audible voice, but by the Spirit of God that lives within me and the Word of God that guides us. What was it that he rebuked them for? It says in verse 14, he upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart. He upbraided them for doubting him, for doubting the testimony of others, and I don't know about you, but I have, I've had to confess many times in my life the sin of worry. You say, but don't you think everybody worries? Probably. But we're not supposed to. We're told in the Bible not to. We're told in the Bible to trust the Lord, to believe God. He upbraided them for the hardness of their heart. Not being sensitive to God's word. Not being responsive to the Spirit of God. You know, it's possible for us today to be Christians, even sit in a church and hear hear the words of a song or the words from God's word, the message, and, and really just be sort of callous to it, not really being sensitive to it. He rebuked them. I would want to think, I would hope to think that if I sat in a church service week after week after week and never seemed to think God was dealing with me, I would like to think that God would rebuke me for the hardness of my heart. He rebuked them. So the first thing we notice here is he is spending time with them. You may be thinking today, I don't know if I want to spend time with Jesus or not. The rebukes come with it. I'd still want to spend time with him, wouldn't you? Even if he does reprimand us. And then we see this great section in verse 15 where he's commissioning the disciples. He says in verse 15, Go ye into all the world. After he rebuked them, he said, I want you to go into all the world 
and preach the gospel to every creature. We've heard this so many times, Brother Lang, read it so many times, and yet it's one of the most powerful and important job descriptions or assignments given to God's people, given to His churches. This is what the church is to be about. It's not a social club. We do fellowship together. We do encourage each other. But it's not to be a social club. It's to take the gospel to the whole world. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, all the world, all the world, and every person. That's daunting, isn't it? Yet that's exactly what God gave us to do. There's a way that this must have impacted those men differently than would us because all the world means Gentiles as well as Jews. It means everyone, every nationality, every country, every language, every ethnic group, all the world. What are they to preach? He says, go in to preach, verse 15, go in to preach the gospel. Go in to preach the gospel, the good news. Go in to preach. It's not, we're not to preach, you know, this, what we hear so much about today is sort of a socially directed message. No, we're to preach the gospel. We're to preach the good news of Christ's death on the cross, the death of Christ for our sins, his bodily resurrection, the promise of eternal life. And what is to be the response to the gospel? Please give your attention to this in verse 16 and 17. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. Notice the emphasis there three times on the word believing. What is the proper response to the gospel? It's to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He that believeth. Now what is this believing? Is it just believing that God exists? Does it just believe that Jesus lived over 2,000 years ago on this earth and that he died outside the walls of Jerusalem? No, it's more than an intellectual assent. Believing on him is not just believing facts and information. It's a heart response. It's a heart belief, a trust. It is a complete reliance, trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. You know, I can look at this chair and say, you know, I'm, I'm really persuaded that this chair will hold me up. But if, I'm not, if I don't have enough faith to, to sit down in it and trust it to hold me up, then I don't really believe it. And if you're here today, just believing that Jesus lived and died and raised again will not save you. You have to put your trust in Him. You have to rely upon Him completely for salvation. Faith in Christ, in the mess, faith in the gospel message is the proper response that brings the salvation and changed life. I want to look at something here in this passage this morning for a few minutes that can be confusing to some. Look in verse 16. It says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Some people, and I hope you'll pay careful attention to what we're saying now, some people will take that to mean that in order to be saved, you have to believe in Jesus, own Jesus, trust Jesus, and be baptized in order to be saved. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So I want us to look at this together for a few moments. Because some people teach what we call 
baptismal regeneration that when you're you believe on Jesus, but it's only after you're dunked in the water that you really can know you're going to heaven. A person who is saved should be baptized. But baptism does not save anyone. If you look at the second part of this verse, the verse itself clarifies this. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. In other words, if a person believes and is baptized, he'll be saved. He doesn't say, but if he doesn't get baptized, he'll be judged or condemned or damned. He says, he that does not believe. So the verse itself tells us that baptism is not what's necessary for salvation, but faith is necessary for salvation. But I want to just take the time, because I think it, it, it merits it, to say this. When a, when a scripture in the Bible, like this verse appears to say something that is not taught everywhere else, then we ought to think about that. We ought to examine it. And I'm, I want to do that. I want, to, I want you to hold your place here in um, Mark chapter uh, 16, if you would, please. Then I want you to turn to the, to the, in your Bible to the right to Acts chapter 2. And we'll see another similar verse. Acts chapter 2. And while you're turning, I'll just kind of bring you up to speed on what's taking place in Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching. It's the day of Pentecost. He's preached the gospel that Christ died for our sins, was buried, raised on the third day. He did what exactly what Jesus commanded him to do. He's preaching the gospel to all people everywhere. And he did that on the day of Pentecost there in Jerusalem. And in verse 37, at the end of verse 37, the people who heard it were pricked in their heart. They were convicted. Acts 2.37, and they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What, is, what shall we do? We're talking about the response to the gospel. What shall we do? And notice what he said in verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. There's only a couple of verses in the Bible that put salvation and baptism in the same way like that. We already looked at one in Mark 16, and the text itself lets us know that it's not the absence of baptism that damns you or judges you, it's the absence of belief or faith that judges you. So let's look at this phrase also in verse 38. Could it, could it be teaching salvation through baptism? Peter answered and said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Now, if you haven't done so before, if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, I'd encourage you to circle the word for, because the word for is key to understanding the verse. The word for can mean a number of things. The word for can mean in order to. In other words, repent and be baptized for in order to have the remission of sins. Or it could mean because of. It, it, in that case, it would mean repent and be baptized, every one of you, because of the remission of sin. In other words, get baptized because you have believed. And I, I, I've used this before, but I want to give you a, a phrase to illustrate this. What if, what if someone said to you, he, 
he went to prison for murder. Does that mean he went to prison in order to murder? Hopefully not. Or he went to prison because of murder. He went to prison for murder. Repent and be baptized for because of the remission of sins. It's not teaching that baptism saves you. Baptism comes after a person is saved, but we ought to be baptized because we've been saved, but not be baptized in order to be saved. I said to you that there are a couple of verses, we've looked at two of them in the Bible, that appear to say that baptism is a part of salvation. But if you were to look up the verses in the Bible that clearly teach that faith alone is necessary for salvation, you would see scores of them. Maybe as many as eight of them. I'll give you a few of them. Uh, Let's look at one together. Go to uh, Romans, just to the right from the book of Acts to Romans. And I want to look at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. And let's just read some familiar verses and notice the emphasis on belief and the absence of baptism. Romans 10, 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt, what? Believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man, what? Believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever, what? Believeth on him shall not be ashamed. There's nothing in there about baptism. It's all about belief. In John 3, 16, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. The righteousness of God in Romans 3, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all them that What? Believe. Ephesians 1.13 In whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed. Luke 8 is about the parable of the sword. It says, Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Acts 10, 43, whosoever believeth in him shall have remission of sins. Acts 13, 39, by him all that believe are justified. 1 Corinthians 1, 21, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And there are literally scores of more verses that say the same thing. And yet some people will take a couple of isolated verses that seem to say something else and start a whole denomination over it. He believed, let's go back to Mark chapter 16 if we could in verse 16 where it says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that puts his faith in Jesus Christ, that would be someone sitting here today, that would be someone in Thailand or someone in Liberia or someone that you work with or someone that's in your family Whoever believes in Jesus Christ is is born again. Whoever puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ is saved, is accepted in the beloved, is justified, is redeemed, is forgiven. Thank God for that. 
And if you're here today and you're not saved, there's nothing you can do to save yourself because Jesus has already done everything for you, but you must put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be saved. But look what it says in verse 16 also. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. Damned, we use that word as a word of profanity. I hope you don't use it, but that's what it is. A curse word, a word of profanity. But it means to be condemned. When someone rejects the gospel, they are damned. They are condemned. They're eternally lost. So we look at this passage in verse 16, and we see the importance of faith, and, and we also see that baptism should be the natural next step after salvation. Baptism does not save us. We know that. We should know that. But baptism has its purpose and its place. It's a, it's a picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. It's not a part of your salvation, but it is a public declaration of your faith in Christ. And it's also the door of church membership. You cannot be a member of, an, of a Baptist church. You should not be allowed to be a member of a Baptist church unless you've been scripturally baptized. It's the door of church membership. Acts 2, they that gladly received his word were baptized. Let's read on in our text in this great passage in Mark chapter 16. And look at what it says in verse 17. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them, they shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So we just briefly take a moment and talk about this matter of miracles or signs and wonders. God has always been and always will be a miracle-working God. We heard of tremendous miracles of God in our Sunday school hour today and getting the gospel to people. But these signs we're talking about were evident in the New Testament period. Casting out devils, the miracle of languages, and that's when it talks about tongue, just talking about languages. Amen. Now God did give me a new vocabulary when I got saved, but it wasn't a different language, it's just better use of the English language. Taking up serpents, there are parts of our country where that is one of the ordinances, I guess, and uh, snake handlers. But uh, that we, we're not into that, and God doesn't want us to be into that. <laughs> I was preaching a revival once down in southern, I just, I don't know why this came into my mind, down in southern uh, Missouri, and uh, I did not, there was some, a singing group there. I never heard of them before, but I was just preaching in this service. I met them before the service, and there was a box up, up on the platform. And when I met them, I said, be careful about that box. I've got snakes under there. They, they thought I might be serious, but we don't do that around here. I killed my first snake of the season, by the way, on our driveway just a few days ago. But these apostles were given these what we call sign gifts. And the Apostle Paul used that language. Please hear this because, again, you'll hear all kinds of things and see all kinds of things in our generation, like, like people who have the gift of all kinds of things. And Paul called these the signs of an apostle. The sign, what were those signs? They were miraculous signs because he had this apostolic power. We have the record. We're talking about snakes. We have the record in the book of Acts of Paul not being harmed 
after he was bit by a viper. A viper bit his hand and he shook, shook the snake off and they, they thought he was a god because the snake did not harm him. Peter raised people from the dead. We have the record of it in our Bible. Paul himself raised a man from the dead after he was listening to preaching all night and fell out of the loft and, and kill, it killed him when he hit the ground. And Paul raised him from the dead. These apostles had been given power to heal the sick. But what was the purpose? What was the, the higher purpose of these sign gifts? It was not to help people. It did help people. It helped them with their infirmities. It did help them. It helped them with their faith. But look what it says in verse 20. It says, And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. That was the purpose of those miracles, to confirm God's word. To they didn't have a Bible in those days. The New Testament had not been written. And God used miracles to confirm or affirm that the message they were preaching was indeed um, from God. God did the same thing in the Old Testament, the miracles, you know, when he delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt and they performed these miracles. We have it in the book in the Old Testament in the ministry of some of the prophets, Elijah and Elisha, who performed miracles, raised people from the dead. But today we live in a different era, and that doesn't mean that God can't perform miracles, but no one has those, that miraculous power on the earth. Again, only God has that power. He may choose to heal someone. He may choose not to. But you say, why don't we? Because we have the confirmed, accurate, complete word of God. So we see this role of the apostles and this miraculous power that they have. Just a couple other things we see in our text. Look in verse 19. And we see the ascension of Jesus. It says, So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. After Jesus imparted this commission to take the gospel to the whole world, he ascended into heaven. He will no longer be himself evangelizing. He gave that responsibility to his churches and to his people. And these people watched. Imagine that. Watched as he ascended into heaven. Acts chapter 1 says this. While they beheld, while they looked, he was taken up. He was, he was received up and a cloud received him out of their sight. So where is Jesus now? Many years ago, uh, uh, an evangelist claimed that he woke up and saw Jesus standing at the end of his bed. Jesus is not at the end of his bed. Jesus is in heaven. He's, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Ephesians says he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus suffered and died for our sins. Jesus met with his apostles he upbraided them for their unbelief. He gave them this great commission, not just in the Gospel of Mark, but in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John, and the book of Acts. He gave them this great commission. And look at the last words, the final words of 16th chapter, verse 20, and it says, And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. So what did the disciples do? After Jesus gave them this 
scolding, after he gave them the great commission, after they watched him visibly ascend up into heaven, what did they do? They immediately began to proclaim the gospel. It says, and they went forth and preached everywhere. They immediately began to do what Jesus had commanded them to do. And they faithfully did that. I was reading this morning in Acts chapter 4 that familiar passage where the religious rulers called the disciples in, the apostles in, Peter and John, and said, we're telling you, you're going to have to quit preaching this message. And what did they say? They didn't say, well, whatever you think is best. They said, we cannot speak at all. They said, you cannot speak at all. And he said, we, you have to decide whether you're going to obey God or not, but we can't help but tell what we've seen and heard. We're going to preach the gospel. Evangelism was their duty. Please hear me today. Evangelism was their responsibility. Evangelism was their assignment. And if you or I were to look at this and say, well, I understand that it was their assignment, but we're not treating it like it's our assignment, then we're missing the whole point. You know, there, there are a lot of things amiss in our world, in our community. There are a lot of things that are wrong. And there are a lot of people who have no interest in spiritual things. But as we heard this morning in the Sunday school hour, and it's true today, God is working in people's hearts. To, with an openness, with a reception to the truth of the gospel. And whether they're open or not, we're responsible for telling them. Not just were they responsible for telling them. Not just are your pastors or least spiritual leaders responsible for telling. All of us are responsible. All of us. I found it very interesting to me personally, just a, a personal blessing that at the at the day that we were celebrating in our country the resurrection of Christ, we found ourselves in Mark's gospel at the point of the resurrection. And today as we have a missionary guest with us and we're emphasizing the ministry of missions, particularly in, in Thailand and now in Liberia, I think it's interesting that we're emphasizing the Great Commission, not because we just planned a sermon, but because it's where we find ourselves in the text Evangelism was their duty. And notice what it says in verse 20. The Lord working with them. It was not their work. Listen, evangelism is not our work. It's God's work. And when we're doing personal evangelism, when we're witnessing to people, when we're telling others what Christ means to us, when we're giving of our resources for missionaries, that are taking the gospel around the world. When we're praying for missionaries, it's not our work, it's God's work. And we want God to work with us. We need for God to work with us. We emphasized this during the conference the first night, that God has promised to work with us. Even in the darkest of times, we can trust God to work. Matthew recorded this a little different way in Matthew 28 when he says, 
Jesus said, lo, I am with you always. Anywhere, anytime you go evangelizing, you're not alone. You may feel alone if you're witnessing to someone on the job. You may feel alone when you're going to a neighbor's house to give them an invite to church or give them a gospel track. But you're not alone because he said, I'll be with you always, even unto the end of the world. This was not just a promise to the 11 or the first church. It's a promise to our church. It's a promise to every true church. You know, every person today should rejoice that Jesus came from heaven to this earth to help people, to minister to people, to call people, to train people, and to go to the cross, die on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. And all of us who know and understand that should believe on him, put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But Jesus didn't just come to this earth to save us. He came to this earth to save every lost sinner who will believe on him for salvation. So the two questions that are on my mind today, number one, are you saved? Hopefully you can say with confidence, with assurance, with sincerity, yes, he's changed my life. Jesus has changed my life. He's made me a new person. He's working in my life. I hope you can say you're saved. And if so, then we ought to ask the other question, what are we doing to take the gospel to others? What are we doing to get the message of the gospel out in our personal witness? Answer it, young person, moms, dads, single people. What are we doing to get the gospel out? You know, people where we work don't just need to know that we're good people. They need to know that we know the Lord, that we're, we have a relationship. People where you go to school, hope your teacher thinks you're an obedient student. I hope your teacher thinks you're a good person, but that's not enough. We want them to know Jesus Christ. We want to at least give them the gospel, plant the seed in their life. So before Jesus departed from this earth, he could have said any number of things. He could have given them any number of final words. Okay, these are my final words. And you know what his final words were? Preach the gospel to every creature. Every person, everywhere, I want them to know what I've done for them. And you know, I think it's only fitting that as we come to this end of the gospel of Mark, that we ask ourselves, are we doing what Jesus gave us to do? Could we improve on that? And I think most of us could honestly say, I could improve on that. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed today, we're going to pray in just a moment. I never assume that every person in the auditorium on any given Sunday or Wednesday or whenever we meet, I never assume that every person is saved. 
I always assume that probably there are people here who've been thinking about it and wondering about it and praying about it maybe even, but you don't know for sure you're saved. Today would be a great day to be saved. To put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if that's you, I encourage you to do so today. And if you're saved, if you're confident you're saved, I would invite you to join me in response to what we've covered today in the Gospel of Mark. I would encourage you to join me in saying, Lord, I want to I personally take this as a reminder that I'm to give the gospel out to other people. People need to hear. How shall they hear without a preacher? Would you do that today, right where you sit or here at this altar, however you, would you be willing to say, Lord, I need to make this a priority. Please help me. He said he'd be with them. He would work with us. We have his word on it.